Hey, everybody. Before we get into this great interview that I had with Nathan Walton, I just first wanted to frame our conversation because I know that many of us have had very differing experiences with what we call the prosperity gospel and churches that preach the prosperity gospel. Something that I love about Pastor Nathan is that he just holds such a kind, compassionate, and nuanced understanding of this. And I think that it's important to remember that within any broken system, any bit of theology that can be harmful, there can also be some really beautiful truths in the midst of that. So I hope that as you listen to this, you'll know that both Nathan and I are fully aware of the fact that the prosperity gospel is a distortion of the true gospel of Jesus, but I hope you can also hear some of the important things that we can learn from it. So, with that in mind, let's get into the episode. Super excited to have our first guest on the podcast. This is uh, Nathan Walton, who is currently the co-lead pastor of a local church here in Richmond, Virginia called Easton Fellowship. Graduated uh, from the University of Virginia with his PhD in religious studies, did uh, his doctoral work on the prosperity gospel, which is uh, most of what we're going to be talking about today. But yeah, Nathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, of course, of course. Super glad to have you. So just a couple of questions. We're going to, I'm trying to ask this to all the guests that I have on this podcast, just to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, but since this is a podcast about the gospel specifically, kind of reframing the gospel, my first question for you is at what point in your life did you first encounter the gospel of Jesus and what about it was most appealing to you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the first time I remember uh, really thinking about the gospel, I was um, nine years old. I was sitting in my uh, in the living room of our house. There was a magazine called Plain Truth. And I remember opening up this magazine. And some backstories, I, I grew up going to a black Baptist church, a small rural church in Southern Virginia. Um, so I see this magazine called Plain Truth. I open it up, and there's a story of these two brothers having a conversation. The... Um, the older brother, the, basically the younger brother and the older brother are talking about salvation. And the um, younger brother asks the younger brother about, like, what is it? And the older brother says, well, um, you know, humanity, like human beings and God are, are separated by this gulf of sin. Like, there, there's yeah. brokenness in the world that separates us. And, and Christ is the bridge. It's a very classic story, right? Yeah. Christ is the bridge <laughs> that bridges us, you know, brings, bridges the gap. And um, the younger brother's name was Nathan. Nice. And the, the, as the, my nine-year-old mind, the first thing I thought was, like, Oh man, like is God trying to tell me something? Because mm-hmm. um, I grew up in a, it wasn't a Pentecostal church, but it was it was a charismatic church, so some Pentecostal Pentecostal elements, and an emphasis on on hearing from God, and um, that was literally the first time that I um, thought about my relationship with God on a personal level. Yeah, and um, yeah, up to that point, church as a child, like church was kind of a way to I viewed it as a way to like receive affirmation because mm-hmm. you know if you could you know, quote scripture or do certain things in church, 
people would applaud you as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I think it wasn't until that moment when I realized, oh, this isn't just about what I can get out of being in church or the affirmation, but it's more about, oh, how we can be in relationship with God. And so yeah. as a nine-year-old, that was the first time I really thought about it for myself. And in the story, the, the little brother named Nathan, you know, he does the sinner's prayer and all those things. And so I followed suit nice. like a good nine-year-old. <laughs> and um, And then it was probably less than a year later, it was probably the first time that I actually felt like I experienced the spirit in my own life or felt the spirit in my own life. And I just remember thinking to myself, something is... Something's different, and I want to figure out what this is. Yeah. And so, um, get baptized, uh, July of nineteen ninety six, and um, yeah, that kind of began my quest of trying to figure out like what is this Christianity thing all about. So yeah, amazing. That's great. Love it. Uh, okay, the second question, just to kind of get the ball rolling here. Um, so, at what point in your life, uh, or at this point in your life, sorry, how would you briefly describe the gospel as you understand it now, today? Oh man, that's a fantastic question. There's a lot that I would say, but I know we don't have 10 hours to talk about it. Um, How to describe the gospel? I think the gospel is uh, good news about the fact that God has loved creation enough to send himself, his son, um, to restore our relationship with him. And, and I think thinking about the gospel for me is um, is actually about thinking about the redemption and restoration of all things, including mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah. And, um, you know, God so loved the world. It doesn't actually say God so loved humanity, although God does love mm-hmm. human, humanity. <laughs> it's God loved the world. And, and, and so I think the gospel is um, both a... Uh, I think it's important to think about the gospel's scope as being about all creation, um, you know, scripture talks about how uh, creation groans in anticipation, right, mm-hmm. um, for the renewal of things through through God's people. So, I uh, I think the scope of the gospel is really important, and I and the scale of the gospel, and I think it is um, much um, less exclusively individualistic than our our um, yeah our, the Western. I would say the broadly Western tradition has construed it, yeah. um, and. Yeah, that's a lot of, of what I think it involves. So. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's a great definition. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so your area of study and your doctoral work was the prosperity gospel. So I would yep. love if you could give us just a really kind of a brief just intro into how you became interested in the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. What were some of the driving factors in your story that led you to that? Sure, sure. Um, so I, I was initially exposed to the prosperity gospel in, uh, I would say, in high school. I um, I took an interest in, in watching different preachers on TV, and um, I would probably, honestly, I would probably watch five to six hours of preaching every Sunday. And at the time, I didn't realize that, all, and I know I was, I was a weird kid, but um, <laughs> at the time, I didn't realize that uh, that uh, that what I was seeing was, was a reflection of the prosperity gospel. I, I just saw it as like, oh, this is... You know, preachers preach it on TV, and um, but it wasn't until I was in uh, college that when I was uh, began, I was a religious studies major at UVA as an undergrad, and so started to think more critically about religion, and started to have other categories for understanding different strands of, of Christianity in particular, and so um, I yeah started to understand oh this is actually a specific kind of brand or flavor of Christianity. And I think what that led me to do is just to have a lot of questions about, okay, so what is unique about this specific flavor of Christianity and um, how do we evaluate it? How do we think about it? How does it relate to other branches of Christianity? And 
Um, but I think my, so I think my intro into it was actually televangelism. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was later in college that I started to kind of more deeply understand both the history and um, some of the character, characteristics of that specific movement. My next question is, can you just give us like a kind of a brief history? So that's, that was your kind of a background, background, background on why you're interested in the prosperity gospel. If you could give us maybe like a brief history of the prosperity gospel itself, like where, where did this specific theology come about? Maybe kind of like a, a time frame, sort of a, just a quick, like kind of historical snapshot on how this way yeah. of thinking came to be. Yeah. Um, well, let me, actually, let me, there's one thing I want to add, a couple things I want to add about the last question. That's sure, all right. Because yeah. I, I realized I left a couple things out that I now come to mind. Um, so in college, I started to also realize how um, popular and prevalent the prosperity gospel was. Mm -hmm. um, and as a religious studies major, I think that's what, so that's what led me to think not only, oh, here's, here's this movement I can learn about, but also, oh, this is actually an important movement that I, I need to learn about mm -hmm. um, to actually understand Christianity. Yeah. And I remember a conversation I had with someone um, my last year as an undergrad uh, who was older than me, who was doing doctoral work at the time in religious studies. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about studying this. And he told me to ignore it because he said it would go away. And he was wrong because it didn't go away. And it continued to grow and still continues to grow today. And I, uh, and so I think that's part, like seeing that, um, like seeing it continue to grow also continue to pique my interest. And then I also began to see areas, like in my own friendships, even in my own family, that the prosperity gospel was affecting people who were close to me in terms of kind of reshaping how they're thinking about their connection to Jesus, reshaping their desires for, you know, what they want in life. And, um, and I think that just raised a whole host of questions for me around what are the positives and negatives, positives and negatives of this movement and um, what type of formation is happening for adherence within this movement. And so, so that's kind of like how I got even more deeply interested, interested in it on a personal level. Um, in terms of the history of the prosperity gospel, I think the story of the prosperity gospel, there are a number of ways to kind of begin the story, but I think an important key figure in the early history is a guy named E.W. Kenyon, um, who was a, a Baptist minister in, in the U.S. Um, he had been shaped by a lot of things, but uh, one of the key influences for him was a philosophical slash metaphysical movement in the late 1800s in America called New Thought, which... Um, uh, some of the key tenets of New Thought are that, you know, the world is 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 um, kind of governed by this uh, spiritual and material, you know, dynamic, this kind of dichotomy, and there's spiritual laws that govern the material world. So that's part of the relationship between those two. And um, as New Thought began to develop and emphasize the power of thought, over time, that began to get connected to the power of speech. And so the idea was that <clears throat> you can use... Um, your speech to actually uh, tap into some of these higher spiritual laws to cause things to manifest in the physical world, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the universe on, on a spiritual level is governed by abundance. It's like abundance is a spiritual, a fundamental spiritual reality. So part of what it means to, you know, to live is to, um, a part of what you would want is to be able to tap into that abundance to bring out material goods for yourself. And when New Thought first like gained steam in the US, the emphasis was actually on um, health and using the power of the mind to achieve physical health and relief from sickness and healing from sickness. And then um, when people like a guy named Charles Fillmore and some other people start to engage it, 
they begin to also use um, the language of, of prosperity and like material prosperity, material wealth, um, and thinking about new thought and the principles of new thought as an avenue to now say, not only can you experience physical health, but now you can experience financial wealth. Mm. And so, um, so a guy named E.W. Kenyon uh, is, is initially shaped, he's a Baptist minister who's shaped by some of these different thoughts, um, but he's also a Christian. And so his work ends up being um, read and engaged by a guy named Kenneth Hagin, who was um, licensed within the Assemblies of God denomination, so he's Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And so, so Kenneth Hagin kind of becomes this um, transitional figure between, like you see E.W. Kenyon connecting some of these broader philosophical traditions with Christianity, and then you see Kenneth Hagin um, connecting E.W. Kenyon's ideas with Pentecostalism. So it's actually one of the reasons why um, the prosperity gospel is so pre- prevalent within Pentecostal circles, right. because that's kind of where it found some of its one of its initial homes. I would I would say, even yeah. though they aren't equivalent. Um, and so what happens is, uh, you know, Edith, uh, Kenneth Hagin kind of picks up on this idea of, you know, financial prosperity and that being tied to um, how we, um, yeah, how we live by these kind of like laws of faith and, and using faith and um, like faith that God will provide through our, our adherence to these certain types of laws and protocols mm-hmm. and ways of engaging the spiritual world. Um, faith uh, leading to what we call like positive confession, which is mm-hmm. basically using your own speech to um, express your faith in God's ability to provide um, financially or in terms of healing. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of takes off. I mean, the, the because I think what happens is you see there's this there are these um, parallels between things that are from the New Thought philosophical tradition and then things that are in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so Kenneth Hagin seeing these parallels and kind of leaning into those things. Yeah. And so, you know, you can read a passage in Romans about how God calls those things that be not as though they were. That is a passage about creation. And now say, oh, as believers, we can use our own words to bring about or manifest material things. Mm-hmm. And so um, Kenneth Hagin obviously is, becomes a popular um, Pentecostal um, evangelist and teacher. Um, this kind of coincides with like uh, a rise in like revivalism in the in the late 1940s, yeah. um, the rise of people like Oral Roberts, um, who kind of popularized, popularizes this idea of seed faith. So we are able to use um, financial seeds or financial offerings and, and expect a financial return. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff is kind of happening in the 40s, going into the 50s. Um, Kenneth Hagin is really taking off in the 50s. And that's also coinciding with two other things. One is um, the rise of the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a way of naming the ways that Pentecostal um, characteristics become embraced by non-Pentecostal traditions. So you might see, yeah. you might even see, I mean, you see even there are Catholic churches during this time, especially going to the 60s and 70s, that were taking on some of these characteristics of more expressive worship and more expressive um, and kind of spirit-influenced um yeah, practices and theology, mm-hmm. and um, and so you have that you have this charismatic movement, and you see these Pentecostal emphases picking up steam in non-Pentecostal spaces, mm-hmm. but it's being accompanied also in some of these spaces by this prosperity emphasis, mm-hmm. and so that's happening. And the other thing that's happening is um, just the rise of mass media, and so the television becoming more important, and radio becoming more important, and um, before you know it, this specific brand of Christianity and a specific kind of brand of a, a form of Pentecostalism becomes actually a cultural export of sorts in the United States, um, and also also takes takes off in the United States. And so, 
it becomes a global phenomenon um, to the point where, you know, by this point, by now, you know, televangelism is a billion dollar industry. And so um, that's kind of how the prosperity gospel comes to be. And uh, so what you see is there's an emphasis on um, financial prosperity, an emphasis on physical health and healing. Um, and both those things are grounded in um, are grounded in certain scriptures or proof texts, uh, whether that be Isaiah 53, speaking about how by Christ's stripes uh, we are healed through his death on the cross, or whether that be um, passages, and I think, I want to say 2 Corinthians, but passages in Paul's letters around how... Um, Christ became poor that we might become rich, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, yeah, like all, all those different types of ideas of how, yes, Christ might have gone through all these things, but he did those things so that we don't have to. And now, mm-hmm. as one preacher I heard would talk about, we're, we're the king's kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so all that to say, as it stands now, there's an emphasis within, within the prosperity gospel movement on financial wealth, that being a right of a believer, um, physical health being the right of the spiritual and, and by extension, like kind of spiritually legal right of a believer. Mm-hmm. And um, this idea that believers can access these things through their own faith and through positive confession, which is using your speech to release your faith so that God will respond um, accordingly. Mm-hmm. And and there, I will say this too. I think this is one of the reasons why people like um, historian Kate Bull are really helpful in understanding the prosperity gospel movement. She makes a distinction between what she calls hard prosperity and soft prosperity. Mm-hmm. So those who are kind of within hard prosperity gospel, especially in the earlier years of the prosperity gospel, emphasize spiritual laws a lot and kind of the expectation that if you do what you're supposed to do, then God's going to respond. Um, whereas soft prosperity is, um, the emphasis there is a bit more on kind of like, kind of connecting with American therapeutic culture and like just positive thinking and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, begin, beginning each day with some affirmations and um, not necessarily quite as rigid as, as the quote unquote hard prosperity gospel movement. But it's all kind of a part of that broader, broader movement, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating, I, and I think something that it seems clear in what you're saying, and that I have recognized in a lot of the prosperity gospel that I've come across is this kind of like connection with the American dream, connection with these American kind of individualistic ideals. How do you kind of see? that crossover um and what's the significance of that do you think well that's a great question that's a great question um let me first say this i think one thing that's interesting about christianity and this is probably true of all religions on some level is there is no um there's no christianity that is completely abstract from human culture right when christianity begins it begins among jews right jews who believe that they were experiencing the fulfillment of their own prophecies, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so it's it's a Jewish religion or a Jewish, I guess, a sect of sorts, but it develops in something different. But what happens in Christianity is, you know, when it becomes even more broadly a more like quote unquote non Jewish or Gentile religion, you also see throughout Christianity's history the ways that it's taking up concepts from Greek philosophy or how it's engaging, engaging um, aspects of Roman culture. Like there are all these other things that give give shape to how Christianity shows up in these communities. And so the American context is no different in that sense because um, Christianity is always interacting with its, its the culture of the people who are, um, who are trying to live it out. And so I think it's just a basic sociological and cultural reality. Um, with that being said, that comes with things that are 
productive and helpful and things that are complicated, right? And, yeah. and I think in the American context, there are a number of ways that uh, Christianity um, intersects with and, um, and in some ways like buttresses other aspects of, of non-religious cultural phenomena here in the States. Mm-hmm. And so to name maybe a few of those things, I think one of the things you already alluded to, which is like the role of individualism in the United States, um, there's obviously a whole history of how that developed. But I think that, you know, within a Christian frame, there's a lot of things within, well, in the prosperity gospel in particular, where there's emphasis on, as I mentioned before, the, the spiritual laws and the ways that you as an individual can tap into those things to manifest an abundant life for yourself. And I think that connects and resonates a lot with um, American sensibilities around, hey, like we, we're, we're in this nation and now we can put ourselves by our own bootstraps mm-hmm. and um, achieve the quote unquote American dream. So I think that the, um, the value of self-reliance becomes one point of intersection between kind of, if we were to distinguish the tradition of the prosperity gospel and kind of more, um, it's kind of more American cultural traditions or tropes. Yeah. I think that's one point of overlap um, I think there are other overlaps in terms of how that connects with realities like capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And because um, capitalism also has a lot of emphasis on, um, yeah, like your your ability to to be able to succeed as an individual within this system, mm-hmm. which um, I think has a lot of um, kind of overlapping sensibilities with the prosperity gospel, but also raises a lot of questions, right? Because if your question is Primarily, how do I become, um, you know, economically successful within the current system? Mm. That's a different question than how do I question the system itself? Mm. Or, you know, what does it mean for me to think about the flourishing of a community as opposed to just my own individual benefit or um, progress? And so I think that becomes kind of a point of, like there's a point of overlap between the prosperity gospel and American sensibilities or American cultural sensibilities, but also raises some complications and questions I think about what's actually most helpful for um, communities of people, and in particular, communities of, of people who have not experienced the American dream mm-hmm. um, as we've construed it. Um, I think the another another point of overlap is how we think about uh, consumerism as a, as a reality here, and, um, and how, I'm trying to think of the book, I wanna say it's Will Kavanaugh's Being Consumed, um, where I think he talks about how we often think about consumerism as being about attachment to things, mm-hmm. um, like materialism, right? We want to hoard things or you know get a bunch of stuff. And I think what he says is that it's actually more characterized by de- detachment, mm-hmm. meaning it's characterized by an insatiability. So it's not that you just want to have a bunch of stuff; it's that what you have is never enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think that emphasis within consumerism, as it functions in the United States, also I think that actually impacts. And is impacted by the prosperity gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's not just that. Oh, I need I need a certain amount of things to be to be able to flourish. But like, it's always more. It's always bigger and better. Yeah. And if, if someone's gonna have bigger and better things, why shouldn't it be me? Mm-hmm. Because you know, as Scripture says, the wealth of the wicked is laid up in store for the righteous. Yeah, right? that's a key proof text. Proof text. So I think those three things are points of overlap: the um, the self reliance slash individualism piece, the capitalistic. Um, Kind of sensibility and then consumerism coming out of that. Yeah, something you mentioned was it appealing to groups and communities who maybe haven't found the American dream to be as achievable. I immediately think of the black community, the African-American community in the United States, 
as as a black man yourself, how do you think that the prosperity gospel has both appealed to and negatively impacted that community specifically? Great question. Great question. I think that um, on one level, I think this part of the part of the um, I was going to say genius of the prosperity gospel, but I'll, I'll put it this way: part of the um, the appeal of the prosperity gospel is that it has a framework that is. Um, yeah, it's able to connect with a lot of different types of audiences. And so for someone who is um, very wealthy, it actually provides a framework for validating their their wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who is not wealthy, or particularly someone who is in poverty, I think it provides a framework for hope and expectation. Um, and so I think, well, I mean, obviously, particularly at this point in history, like the black community is, is diverse in a lot of these ways, but... Um, Particularly historically, obviously we were brought here as slaves, and so that that will uh, have a generational impact. And uh, I think the part of what happens as um, kind of the black black community, like largely speaking, um, as they interact with these types of movements, is it does provide a framework, it provides hope, it provides um, uh, it it connects with other things within Christianity that black black folks have already embraced that kind of makes sense of. You know what? Um, how they should respond to their own their own economic situation, and yeah. and I think um, so. I think there are things that are helpful about that. In so far as one, it communicates to someone who's in a in, in the black community that God actually cares about your material, um, yeah, your material situation. Mm-hmm. That 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 a Christianity that is devoid of um, material implications is is an anemic Christianity. And so I think there's a certain type of validation and affirmation that comes from from knowing that you're seen by God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that helps to make it relevant to people who are in that type of situation. I think at the same time, at my concern, one of my concerns with the prosperity gospel is that it can shape people, whether it be black or white, to think of the answer to that is um, to think in primarily individualistic terms as opposed to thinking systemically or communally. Mm-hmm. And so so I think if if our first question, I think I guess I mentioned this earlier, but like if our first question is how do I succeed within this system instead of how do I um, provide a productive critique of the system mm-hmm. or even alternatives to the system, then I think we're going to shortchange our ability to really be catalysts for progress in our communities. Mm-hmm. And so... So I think that's one of the liabilities of the prosperity gospel. It does not mean that churches within the prosperity gospel never talk about systems. That's not that's not true necessarily. And um, but I do think, regardless of of that of like what some of that rhetoric could look like in sp- in spaces like the prosperity gospel movement churches, I think we have to ask generally how is this framework forming us? Mm-hmm. Like, is it in what ways is it forming us to be engaged in our communities? And um, granted, there are a variety of ways to be engaged in your communities, but I think there are um, the ways that the form of religious individualism that's operative in the prosperity gospel does not make the type of systemic engagement that's necessary mm. for real progress in our country yeah. necessary theologically for those communities. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think that I think you and I would both agree. We're both we're both on the same page that the prosperity gospel is a bit of a distortion of the true gospel of Jesus that we see in scripture. However, yes. I think there it's important to realize that there are elements of it, and I think you've spoken into this a little bit, elements of it that are appealing for good reason to people that maybe show us some holes in our own theology, some holes in our own way of interpreting the gospel, that people are, people are missing important things, and that's why this prosperity gospel is so appealing. So 
maybe you could speak into that a little bit and you already have a a little bit but what are some maybe some specific ways that come to mind that reasons that people are so drawn to this and maybe what that says about our own interpretation of the gospel yeah it's a great those are great questions those are great questions um i will say one thing it makes me think about is the ways that we as christians conceive of what it means to be a part of the body of christ um because oftentimes i i hear that and in some ways i think it's a symptomatic of the american context but Oftentimes we talk about that within our own individual churches, like, oh, like there's 50 people in this room, we're all part of the same body, how do we function well together? And I think that's important, but we don't always think cross-denominationally, um, and we don't necessarily even ask the question, oh, if I'm a in a Lutheran church, like, what do we need to learn from Pentecostals? Or if I'm an Episcopalian, like, how, how should I be learning from um, those who are part of the vineyard? Or like, how do we, like, how do these pieces fit together? Because if we don't ask that question, we might end up functionally assuming that our church kind of has the answer and we, we're doing it right as a whole. Mm-hmm. When in reality, there, there are these gaps and deficiencies across the board because we actually need each other. And so I say that to say, when we think about the prosperity gospel, I think there's been a, lo- a long history of people who are not in those spaces, um, creating characters about that, that movement and those within it, um, a long history of people demonizing that movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself historically a part of that, some of those groups. I think before I before I actually did my own ethnographic work, because I because it was so personal to me and people in my life have been affected by it negatively, I kind of assumed, oh, like everybody in this movement is is duped and you know or deceived or, or whatever, as opposed to like taking the time to get to know them, to know their stories, to see the way that God has actually moved in their lives, um, and to be able to engage in conversation that that can can involve some sharpening and, and mutual challenge. Um, and so, so I say that to say the fact that there, there's often this polarity between the prosperity gospel and other traditions um, and some animosity, mm-hmm. I think that is an indictment of how we understand the body, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is I do think that we have to ask ourselves, why is this movement so popular? Like, is it that that many people are deceived or is there something else that's, that's there that's, that's actually doing some positive work for people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing the prosperity gospel does through, and in some ways because of how it's flourished is that I think it is an indictment of other aspects of the Christian body that don't take into account the material conditions of people in general, and even its own people, people within its own walls, mm-hmm. or at least not adequately. And I think the prosperity gospel tells us that God actually cares about those things. Um, and the irony of it is I, you know, in the, particularly in the Western Christian tradition, particularly in the white Western Christian evangelical tradition, I think that we, well, I guess I can't say we, I'm not white, but I think that that um, tradition um, uh, has inherited some, some uh, yeah, some, some European emphases that are, that are post-enlightenment, or enlightenment and post-enlightenment emphases on kind of the split between the body and the spirit, mm-hmm. and not just the... Um, not it's not just that oh the spirit is sli- slightly pri- you know takes a slight priority over the material but that like the spiritual is really what it's about right it's about getting your soul saved and going to heaven and yeah. and I think the prosperity gospel indicts that and I also think that it, there's a certain type of way that the prosperity gospel can be read as a um, a stronger um, a, a way to take more seriously the incarnation of Jesus mm-hmm. because part of what Jesus is doing is. He's God becoming human, right? Which which is a is an affirmation of the material world in a certain type of way, um, in order to redeem that world. 
And and so there's a way to read um, the white Western evangelical tradition as a bunch of things, but, in, but part of it is not actually wrestling adequately with the reality of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because if Jesus was only concerned about saving our souls, he could have done that in less than 33 years. He also right. could have done that without dying. Um, <laughs> but but because um, he's God, he can do all those things. But I think that the, um, so I think there's something, there's something within the prosperity gospel movement um, that we need to learn as, as a broader church about how do we understand what it means for Jesus to become human and also how's, how do we understand what salvation is actually about and the scope mm. of salvation. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think one of the main ways that we see the prosperity gospel working in a, in a negative way, or maybe I shouldn't say we, uh, the, I've seen the prosperity gospel working in a negative way is that it can, I think, very easily bring people to this false understanding of, of suffering and of what it means to endure a hardship as a follower of Jesus and whether or not that's God's will for our lives or not. Um, so I'm curious, how can we, or maybe how does the prosperity gospel lend itself to this distorted understanding of what it means to endure hardship as Christians? And maybe how can we reframe that in a, in a healthier way? Yeah, that's a great man. I mean, there's, there's two things connect, two things about that that are interesting to me. One is how do we think through what our expectations should be of the Christian life? And the other is about uh, what is our authority as a believer, right? So the language of authority is, is really common in prosperity gospel spaces, in part because of that philosophical or metaphysical framework of, hey, as an individual, you have the spiritual resources and power to bring spiritual realities into physical manifestation, including healing and, and um, financial gain. And you have that power because of your identity in Jesus through what he's done, right? And so I think part of what's challenging about this is if it's the case that you have the spiritual resources to avoid suffering, then why, you know, if you're experiencing suffering, like what's wrong? Like, do you not have enough faith or um, do you misunderstand the formula of faith or how to use the, you know, use the tools right? Or, um, or do you have sin in your life that you need to get rid of, right? It all becomes, it all can become... Um, individualistic to the point that you are now the source of your problem mm-hmm. as opposed to someone experiencing a problem. Yeah. And, um, and that's just, that's just, a that's, there are ways that that's, that historically has been harmful for people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be one to say that, um, you know, there's this hard decision between like, are we responsible for stuff or is someone else always responsible for stuff? Like there's, there's overlap, obviously. And there are things, there are things that we do have agency over that can cause our own suffering. <laughs> Um, or things we could do that could prevent some suffering. Um, but I think because of the individualistic framework, I think it puts a certain amount of um, responsibility on the individual that I think isn't always helpful. Um, the, so that's kind of part of the suffering piece in terms of like, I think what's problematic about the approach to suffering is that there is a, um, uh, there's a lot of presumed human agency which then means that people can be blamed for their suffering. Uh, so that's not helpful, I don't think, ultimately. The, but the other piece is the expectation piece, which is really around what do we expect of the Christian life, mm-hmm. right? Because if we expect the Christian life to be amazing and, and suffering-free, if suffering happens, then that means something must be wrong, mm-hmm. right? Either with us or 
or was God not being honest, right? Um, and so I think in some ways that is a, um, a hermeneutical question because it's a question of how we understand scripture. It's a question of how we understand um, both who Jesus was and what he actually um, makes possible for the believer. And so I think that's another kind of point of conversation within the church around like, what what is it, like to what degree should we expect suffering? Like what, what should we expect of the, of the Christian life? And I, I mean, I personally would say we see a lot of examples in the Bible of how Christians, you know, they're killed, they're murdered, they're, all those types of things. Um, and uh, not all the time, but suffering is not something that the Christian body is foreign to. And suffering is not something that Jesus was foreign to. And so I think in order to presume that we shouldn't experience that, there, there's, a, there's a hermeneutical leap, I would say. There's, a, there's an assumption that's being made about the impact of what Jesus did. And so then the fundamental question becomes like, oh, so Jesus do something so we wouldn't have to go through that? Or did Jesus actually model a way to go through those things that we are now called to follow him after, mm-hmm. right? So if Jesus dies on the cross and then he, and he tells us in advance that we are take, to take up our own crosses, that sounds a lot more like, hey, we're going to be following in the footsteps of this person who's going to go through a lot and who now has gone through a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to be experienced resurrection as people who are following in his footsteps. That's very different than um, assuming that Jesus took up a cross so that we don't have to take up a cross. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that people within prosperity gospel churches would say that language or say like, oh, we don't have to take up a cross. But um, functionally, there's, there's still a, a question around, as believers, how do we recognize that suffering is also an expectation of the Christian life? Mm-hmm. Because one, we're in the middle of spiritual warfare, right? Ephesians 6. Um, and you can't, uh, to quote a good friend of ours, um, you can't expect to be a part of the victory without being in the battle. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is, there is something within kind of the, the um, I think there's something very biblical about understanding that Christianity is not so much about the avoidance of suffering, but about, in part, how do we navigate those realities mm-hmm. in a way that um, affirms and reflects the redemption of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, yeah. That's good. I think this is interesting for me because I grew up kind of on the other side of the spectrum in a very... Uh, hyper Calvinistic theology, Ooh. which puts all of the onus on God, mm-hmm. saying that yes, suffering is expected, but it is God's will. God has willed what whatever bad circumstance that you're experiencing now, so you should just endure it because it's God's will for you. And there are different ways of interpreting that, I think, within that theological framework. But I can understand to an extent the appeal of saying, no, God actually wants you to prosper, God wants you to thrive. Because I do think there's some truth to that. I think that God does, in God's heart, want us to prosper. God does not will or want the suffering of his people. But, like you're saying, suffering is an inevitable part of being a Christian, of following Christ. So, that's just, yeah. it's a really it's a really difficult intersection there of this fact that we are going to suffer. We're told that we're going to suffer. But we also need to affirm that God's will for us is thriving. God's will for us is, I think, finding joy and fulfillment amidst the hard things of life. Yes. So that's just, and it, it's interesting for me coming from the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really helpful. Cause like even, you know, John Calvin, right. He would, he would, um, even though he would make the distinction between like, uh, kind of God's active will versus God's permissive will. He had a Calvin believed in God's active will. Like God is the one who's ordaining these things in, in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think there, 
Yeah, it's just, it's just it's just fascinating because that you're right. They just put a lot of a lot more onus on God's role in that, um, and yeah, gosh, now you've got all my wheels turning. Because also making me think about the way we think about the Protestant work ethic and the way that some people read the Protestant gospel as a as a kind of a new iteration of that. That like oh like now like so for example it, within like like a, um, imagining those within the Calvinist tradition early in America's history America's history where. Part of them trying to work out, um, showing how they are the called, is to actually be economically successful and to do these things mm-hmm. because the validation of your of your um, predestination in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. so that what so what's interesting about that is that you actually see this cross section of like how we understand divine agency and human agency mm-hmm. because human agency is a way of living out what God has actually already done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the prosperity gospel can become an embodiment of that, right? That like, oh, God's called us. And the way that we show that um, is actually through our economic flourishing. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so it's like, so I'm glad you brought that up. an overlap there. Because even, yeah, within the community that I grew up in, there was still this sense that if you weren't doing well financially, that... It's calling things into question. It's calling things into question, <laughs> exactly. So there's still this overlap of this... Yeah, of agency. This, God yeah, agency, human. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I guess to kind of pull everything together, like what, in what ways can we start to reframe sort of like fill in some of the holes in the gaps in what I would say our maybe our shared tradition of just like evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that we can start to, with our understanding of the prosperity gospel, both what it offers that is appealing to people and what maybe it distorts in a negative way. How can we take that and start to hopefully, yeah, reframe what we currently have as evangelical Christians. And I know that some of your doctoral work was on that. A lot of it about was about how we're formed as Christians um, and how we can interact in a more communal way versus this kind of individualistic way that we see in the prosperity gospel. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I I do think that there is a um a big opportunity for the church and I'll say like churches to think about how do we actually build relationships and interact with other Christians who are from different traditions? Mm-hmm. Because I think it'd be one thing to say like, "Oh, and I believe this," but like I could be one thing to say, "Oh, there's specific um practices or theological emphases that churches need to kind of learn from one another, but in order for that to happen, there kind of has to be some of a relationship and mutual learning. And um, and I think they're, like America is just a very interesting place because we are often in echo, chamber, echo chambers, both religious and non-religious. Yeah. And so it kind of prevents the level of um, theological cross-pollination that can happen because mm-hmm. there's actually not a lot of relational cross-pollination. Yeah. And yeah. so um, the first thing I want to say is like, what does it mean for us to like, actually get to know one another so that we can be in those types of relationships mm-hmm. or church partnerships with one another so that, um, and oftentimes that doesn't need to happen even in within the denomination. Right? <laughs> so if like, how do we kind of, how do we overcome that, that inertia? Because that inertia is a reflection of our own individualism in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so how do we overcome that such that we can actually learn more from one another and to grow? Um, and so I think, but I think as we do that, then I think it gives us a chance to say, okay, so you do things differently over here. Like, how do I learn from that? Um, what are things that I do, or like in churches that in our own churches that we do that we take for granted that could be malforming some of our people? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I mean, so I'll say one other thing. So I, um, one of the things I really appreciate about studying prosperity gospel churches is I would just, I learned a lot about how people are being formed. Mm-hmm. And, and I just remember thinking, um, and there are a number of practices that I remember seeing, whether that be, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of them, but um, a number of practices where I would think, oh man, with a different theology, with different language, this could really form someone really helpfully. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the, the way that um, in some of the churches, certain creeds were read and like kind of the repetition of that. Mm-hmm. I think about the aesthetics of the space mm-hmm. and the way that would form people's sensibilities. Because um, like, yeah, it just I think that just creates, there's a lot of um, opportunity for fresh imagination mm-hmm. around how are people actually formed beyond a sermon mm-hmm. or beyond even a song? Um like how how is the visual representation of the Christian life in that space shape us? Mm-hmm. Um, how do the rituals that we engage in shape us? I think I think the pro, the prosperity gospel churches I've been in, um, at least the strongest ones, they just are really good at that. And um, with some different content, that could have some really really important benefit. Uh, so I think I say that to say there's things for us to learn from the prosperity gospel, not just about what they're saying but also how they're even presenting it. Mm. Because there's a reason why people are drawn to this church and there's a reason, or these churches, and there's a reason why people are drawn away from other types of churches. And so I think mm. being able to um, not only uh, kind of have some more exposure with different types of traditions to learn from them, but to also be honest enough to say, and humble enough to say, hey, maybe we have room to grow within our own traditions. Mm. I think that's kind of the space of opportunity for our growth as, as Christians. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's more to say, but that's a big part of it. I think. No, that's, that's super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much, Nathan, for joining me on this podcast, for being my guinea pig, my first interviewee. <laughs> really glad that you could be here and share some of your wisdom. So thanks for your great questions. Yeah. Appreciate the time. Yeah. Thanks.